Africa rise and shine Africa zola Africa amka na unai Good morning and welcome to Africa rise and shine This is Channel Africa the African perspective coming to you live from Johannesburg in South Africa you can find us on the frequencies 7230 kilohertz on the 41 meter band to southern africa and 151525 kilohertz on the 19 meter band to west africa as well as on dstv's audio bouquet channel 802 my name is gahisho sekhetelo in studio with jolani tulo wisani matebula and fikile lengwati your top stories on africa rise and shine this hour South African opposition don't want President Zuma to deliver the state of the nation address. Activists say anti-corruption needs to be included in the schooling curriculum. In economics, South African consumers remain pessimistic. And in looking at your sports, ODI series between India and South Africa kicks off in Durban. Ms. Jolani Tulo has your news. Thank you, Gakisho. Good morning. The president of Eritrea, Isaiah Safweki, has expressed displeasure with Israel's plan to deport tens of thousands of African migrants. In a rare interview, President Afweki says the migrants deserve far more than the $3,500 offered to leave. He says they deserve more than $50,000. Many leaving the East African nation claim they fled a restrictive Eritrean regime where men are often forced into military service with slavery-like conditions. Afweki also claims the Eritrean migrants were enticed abroad to organize an armed opposition, but that the subversive schemes failed and that the migrants have become a burden. United Nations High Commission for Refugees Filippo Grandi is to highlight the humanitarian crisis in South Sudan later in the day by visiting a refugee camp in neighboring Kenya. The UN Refugee Agency UNHCR says nearly 7 million South Sudanese are in need of assistance. The BBC's Will Ross reports. All efforts to end 4 years of war in South Sudan have failed as ceasefires have been broken, ethnic division as well as mistrust have deepened. The result is Africa's biggest refugee crisis and the numbers are shocking. 1 in 3 people have had to abandon their homes, 2 and a half million have fled the country, most of them children. The UN High Commissioner for Refugees, Filippo Grandi, is visiting one of the refugee camps in neighboring Kenya on Thursday. He'll launch an appeal for 1.5 billion dollars to help improve the lives of those fleeing the civil war. African leaders this week came close to demanding that President Donald Trump publicly apologize for his vulgar remark about the continent that divide that defies all forms of diplomatic etiquette. That's according to a draft declaration obtained. The draft created during an African Union summit says heads of state and government are deeply appalled by Trump's reported comparison of African countries to a dirty toilet. It warns that the strategic partnership between Africa and the United States is at risk because of Trump's alleged racist and xenophobic behavior. African leaders appear to have changed their mind on issuing the draft declaration because of a letter sent to them by Trump last week pledging his deep respect for the continent of Africa and its people. The letter emerged after Trump met with Rwandan President Paul Kagame, who is the new AU chairperson at the World Economic Forum in Davos, Switzerland last week. 
South Africa's Health Minister Aaron Mozwaledi has apologized unconditionally to the families and the nation for the deaths of 144 mentally ill patients after they were transferred to unlicensed NGOs across the Gauteng province. Mozwaledi says there is a need to investigate the possible abduction of kidnapping of the patients as they were not properly discharged from the state life facility facility. Human rights organization Section 27 has suggested that 12 more mentally ill patients died and over and over above the 144 confirmed death toll. In an emotional final statement at the Life Facility Mini Arbitration hearings in Johannesburg, Motswaledi said the patient's rights were violated. I wish to apologize unconditionally to both the families and relatives of the deceased and those who are still living and to the whole nation at large. We have really wronged them in a way unimaginable. When I read the UMBAS report about how people were bundled in vents and tied with sheets, and, and how they were chosen, like, as he described it, like cattle at an auction. I, I mean, I, I couldn't just imagine in our new democracy and in a department where we put up an act and human rights come and be breached in this manner is very painful. And finally, the entire board of the USA Gymnastics has resigned over its failure to protect young gymnasts from the convicted Dory in Dr. Rather Larry Nasser. At a hearing in Michigan on Wednesday, a judge said the number of known sexual abuse victims of Nasser had risen to 265. Nasser was in court again to be sentenced for molesting patients in the back room of a gymnastics class in Michigan. Juliette McCurr is a sports journalist with the New York Times. This is kind of just the tip of the iceberg, and that's sort of the sinking feeling everybody's getting. The sad part of it is that the United States Olympic Committee only moved to force USA Gymnastics to get rid of all of its board of directors to force them to resign. Only after more than 150 girls and women testified or gave their impact statements in court last week. So that's what it took for people to finally start dismantling USA Gymnastics. For Channel Africa, I'm Jolani Tulo. Africa, rise and shine. Africa, Zosa. Africa, Amuka na Unai. Good morning once again from a very gloomy-looking Johannesburg. Your top story this hour... Anti-corruption needs to be included in the schooling curriculum so that children are taught good ethics from an early age. That was the consensus reached by youth activists representing the Africa region at this year's annual Youth Forum, hosted by the UN's Economic and Social Council in New York. Delegates were allowed a breakaway session according to their geographical regions and then presented their findings to the entire forum where the Africa group, led by a delegate from Botswana, presented a frank assessment of challenges, particularly corruption, facing the region. Sherwin Bryce Pease reports. It's an annual gathering of youth leaders from around the world. A group of media-savvy millennials engaged in discussion on how best to advance the post-2015 agenda and the Sustainable Development Goals. The Africa group chose to focus on corruption. Listen to Gogontle Khang Paladi, who is a development practitioner from Botswana, who spoke on behalf of her region. 
We have to agree and stop living in a cloud of denial that corruption is not a serious challenge in Africa and something that has impeded our progress and development over the past decades because uh, for you to look forward more futuristically on how to overcome the challenge that you have, you have to admit that it's indeed a problem. The position expressed just days after the African Union Heads of State Summit in Ethiopia resolved to place corruption at the center of its agenda. One of the things that came out prominently was that young people felt that there isn't sufficient political will and commitment to winning the fight against uh, corruption in Africa. Why? Because many of our countries signed the human rights declarations, conventions, and all these great treaties that are presented by the African Union and the United Nations. But when they go back home, there isn't proper implementation, there isn't enforcement, there are also not mechanisms of of accountability for those human rights treaties. Globally, the population of young people stands at almost 2 billion and according to the UN offers immense potential and considerable challenges, including unemployment and those who find themselves in extreme poverty. Paladi again. Young people also committed to using modern and advanced technology to empower ourselves because we said that there is a serious problem of many young people today who are ignorant by choice because we don't seem to take interest in empowering ourselves about anti-corruption rules and regulations or declarations that are there or any national importance um, uh, processes that happen in our country. So we challenge each and every one of us to also go back and report back to our, constitu- to, to our constituents because accountability is not just your government, it's also to us as young people gathered here. The forum ends later Wednesday. I'm Sherman Bryce-Pees in New York. South African President Jacob Zuma has submitted his representations to say why he should not face prosecution for the 2009 spy tape saga to the National Prosecuting Authority late on Wednesday evening. The representations were initially supposed to be submitted in November 2017, but National Director of Public Prosecutions, Sean Abrahams, extended the deadline to January 31, 2018. A Supreme Court of Appeal ruling dismissed Zuma's and the APA's and the NPA's application to appeal a High Court ruling that the dropping of the corruption charges against him by then-NPA boss Mukotedimche was irrational. Neo Makwiting reports. Today is the D-Day for President Jacob Zuma to make representations to the National Prosecuting Authority, NPA, on why the graft charges should not be reinstated. Nine years ago, the former NPA head, Mukwate decided not to prosecute President Jacob Zuma following the leak of the spy tapes. Political analyst Professor Lisibet says he appreciates the new form and willingness the NPA has demonstrated in the recent days to prosecute without fear and favor or prejudice. Tefu says he's highly hopeful that the NPA will find the same courage it displayed the couple of days ago and reinstate churches against Zuma. Abrahams is likely to charge the president. I appreciate the vigor and rigor recently found and discovered by Sean and his team. And I really want to commend them and urge to them to continue to work in this direction rather than to denounce and renounce them to a point where they can get demobilized. It is never too late, Mr. Sean Abrahams, to do the right thing.
TFU says when history books are written, President Jacob Zuma's 10 years tenure as the CEO of South Africa will reveal three faces. TFU described Zuma's personality and administrative style during his presidency as having similarity to the 1966 epic western film featuring Clint Eastwood, estering the good, the bad and the ugly. I regard him as the one who can fit the movie, the good, the bad, and the ugly. Not everything about him is bad. There are good things, but unfortunately, the bad surpass the good. His conduct in matters pertaining to his moral probity and the legal challenges that he faced and continue to face do not cover him in glory. It doesn't do him any good. I'm just hoping that... uh, he would subject to the, himself to the outcome of the NPA so that he can live with reasonable modicum of decency and respect. Meanwhile, the NPA is expected to make a public announcement about their next move on President Jacob Zuma representation. I'm Nemo Kitting in Pretoria. If you'd love to interact with us, we'd love to hear from you. Our WhatsApp line is open, plus 2776-300-3327. You can also text us on plus 27-796-957-930. This is Channel Africa. Opposition parties in South Africa's parliament are determined to ensure that President Jacob Zuma does not deliver the State of the Nation address, scheduled for Thursday next week. The economic freedom fighters want a motion of no confidence in the president be scheduled before the SONA, while the DA is pushing that the event be postponed until the issue of the state presidency is resolved by the ANC and parliament. Both parties have written to the Speaker of the National Assembly in the last two days. Here's Busi Chimombe with the report. President Jacob Zuma could face the ninth motion of no confidence in his presidency since he took office. This is if the economic freedom fighters have their way. The EFF has written to the Speaker of Parliament, Balegambete, requesting a meeting to discuss if a parliamentary session can be held before the State of the Nation address. Spokesperson, we send in closing. So we want a Parliament to be convened earlier so that the motion of no confidence can be tabled. And this is because there are so many developments, uh, chief of which are the court development or court outcomes that implicates uh, Mr. Zuma, and we believe that majority of the members of parliament have shifted in relation to how they feel in relation to confidence uh, whether Zuma should lead the country or not. The Democratic Alliance is also pushing to scupper the all-important address, which outlines the government's program of action for the year ahead. It has requested a postponement of the event, contending that it is not in the best interests of the country for President Zuma to deliver the address, when it is not clear whether he will remain the head of state. DA leader Musimai Mane says President Zuma has lost the confidence of both his party and the people. Let us postpone state of the nation address. Let us settle this issue of who should be the president of the republic. And once parliament has convened to remove Mr. Zuma, elect a new president, then that president with the mandate of parliament, the people of South Africa and their respective party can then lead to ensure that the plans we put forward, they can execute and that we can deliver for the people. In the absence of that, State of the Nation address in next week will just only be a show and a complete joke. Other opposition parties may join the fray. 
the United Democratic Movement, Bantu Holomisa. The United Democratic Movement has written to all political party leaders of the opposition in parliament proposing that uh, we meet on Friday at 10 o'clock to discuss the state of the nation address and also the proposal for a vote of no confidence. It would be great if the ANC were to recall Zuma on or before the 8th of February so as to have a smooth state of the nation address and, uh, and, and focus on the future. The ANC, meanwhile, appears unfazed. It has described the EFF's request for a motion of no confidence as frivolous, despite the narrow 198 against 177 votes that defeated the last motion in November last year. There were nine abstentions at the time, with some ANC MPs having clearly voted for the opposition to oust their leader, spokesperson Kusela Sangoni. As the African National Congress, we would always support any decision that is taken by the Speaker in line with the rules of Parliament, but this motion, like many before it, will fail. We believe that any challenges um, surrounding the person of uh, Comrade President Jacob Zuma, the ANC is dealing with those matters. The National Working Committee that said this month also mandated the national officials to engage President Zuma on these motions of no confidence and really any other issues that uh, relate to the dynamic link between union buildings and Hotuli House. The Speaker of the National Assembly's office has confirmed receipt of the EFF and DA letters. It says that as soon as a joint sitting of both the Houses of Parliament, both the Speaker of the National Assembly and the Chairperson of the National Council of Provinces will have to consider the correspondence and reply accordingly. And that was Buzi Chimombe with that report. The suspended ANC leadership in South Africa's KwaZulu-Natal province has been instructed by Lutuli House to withdraw its appeal following the Peter Marisburg High Court ruling last year. Late last year, the suspended Provincial Executive Committee appealed both the High Court ruling that nullified the 2015 Provincial Conference and the execution order granted to party members that took them to court for them to vacate the office. The ruling ANC top leadership says the stalemate between two factions in the province can only be resolved through a political process and not in court. Vusi Makosini has more. What was expected to be a long battle between two ANC factions in Guazunatal will now be dealt with internally. The ANC national leadership has directed its party members in the province to withdraw court cases in the Supreme Court of Appeal. The appeal was expected to be heard in the SCA sometime this year. However, the national leadership has now put the lead on this court battle. Coordinator for the Interim Committee in the province, Sihles Galala, explains what will happen with the appeal the suspended PEC had filed with the Supreme Court of Appeal. The view was that firstly on the appeal against the uh, execution order, the execution order should be withdrawn. Uh, should withdraw the appeal. It therefore meant the PEC is suspended and then it prepares for the, for the provincial conference. In relation to the appeal on the case itself, the NEC resolved that we should not continue with court processes, but we should instead seek a declaratory order on the interpretation 
of clause uh, 17.2.1. We are going to look on the uh, declaratory order, but we are going to withdraw also the appeal on the execution order. Meanwhile, another thorny issue in the hands of the Provincial Interim Committee is the question of why the portrait banner of President Jacob Zuma is still hanging outside the ANC offices in Devon. The banner carries the ANC campaign message for the 2016 municipal elections. An explanation from Zigalala was that the banner with the face of newly elected ANC President Sir Ramaphosa will be put up soon. We will now add the president of the ANC. It therefore means that the archives and the material bearing the former president zoom will be moved to where we keep the archives so the branding should be about the president of the anc the sitting president of the anc and the president is sarah ramaphosa and that was done while campaigning during uh, elections under president zoom Convener for the Provincial Interim Committee, Mike Mabiakulu, says it should not be made a big issue for a banner with the face of President Zuma to be still hanging outside party provincial offices. We believe, therefore, that uh, the existence of the picture of our 13th president, that is Comrade uh, Jacob Zuma, it should actually mean nothing because he is our former president and he is currently one of our senior leaders who is the state president of the republic. And for us, in the same way that uh, this year, we are celebrating the centenary of uh, Dr. Nelson Horishasha Mandela and we will have a lot of um, material, which is ANC material, that will display uh, President Nelson Mandela's uh, uh, photos and, and it's still about promoting the very same ANC. And that report was brought to you by Vusi Makonsini. Channel Africa. reporting for Channel Africa in Kigali. Africa, rise and shine. I am Hilda Kekeloa in Zambia. This is Simon Muchemwa in Harare, Zimbabwe. Jean-Noël Bamwisi, Channel Africa, Kinshasa. From an African perspective, listen to Channel Africa in English, Kiswahili, French, Silozi, Portuguese, and Chinyanja. This is Moki Kinzeka. In Yawundi. Informing the world about Africa. Ngatani in Mohalizuk, Lesotho. And I am Dana Wanyonyi for Channel Africa in Mombasa. At least three quarters of South African pregnancies are unplanned, contributing significantly to high risks during early pregnancy. This according to a new study by the Foundation of Alcohol Research in a move to contribute to a positive pregnancy experience and to help reduce fatalities the world health organization who has issued recommendations on antenatal visits diet exercise and vaccinations among others for more on this issue we are now joined on the line by julia cruciolo a pharmacist and an expert in complementary medicines good day julia i hope i said your name right welcome yes good morning to you Welcome. Uh, Firstly, uh, let's reflect more on the prevalence of unwanted pregnancies in South Africa and the risks they pose for the mother and the child. Yes, unfortunately, it is a very high statistic uh, that 78% of South African pregnancies are actually unplanned. And the reason why this could be a potential problem is because there are many risks associated with pregnancy 
in general, and especially if it's unplanned, even more so. Um, for example, you know, if, if a pregnancy is unplanned, then the mother is not really aware of some of the danger signs during pregnancy that could um, lead to maternal death. For example, if she has vaginal bleeding or any kind of convulsion, if she has a high fever, if she has any abdominal pain or severe headaches or blurred vision, and even if there's no movement, you know, no movement in the belly of the fetus, then all these kind of things could be, um, you know, alarm bells that go off that should warn a mother that there's a problem here. But with an unplanned pregnancy, a lot of this antenatal care does not happen. And so there's a big gap that happens which can often lead to um, risks to the mother and fatality. And unfortunately, it's... Um, it's a really sad fact that um, there's uh, um, that the, the, the child uh, sorry problems in pregnancy and childbirth actually are the most likely cause of death for teenage girls in sub-Saharan Africa above any other disease. Uh, death from uh, childbirth is very very high in sub-Saharan Africa, and all of this, as we know, can be prevented through education and through planning a pregnancy. Um, and becoming, you know, much more uh, prepared. Which is where the WHO comes in. Uh, can you yes. talk us through their recommendations to ensuring a healthy pregnancy? Well, what they did in 2016 in Geneva, they put together some recommendations, about 49 of them, and they just basically outline what kind of care a pregnant woman should receive um, while she's going through a pregnancy. Like, for example, increasing the contact with the healthcare professional from four up to eight visits. Because during, if, if there's more visits with the healthcare professional, there's a greater chance that the woman will be exposed to education and also to be able to pick up any problems. Also, the WHO recommended more counseling about healthy eating, how does she keep physically active during a pregnancy, what kind of supplementation should she take? Because we know with pregnant women, the risk of iron deficiency anemia is really, really high. And that, again, is completely preventable. Um, also, they should ask the health, the pregnant woman, um, you know, is she using alcohol, other substances, and also find out, you know, what the situation is at home, the relationship with the father, is there any kind of abuse, make sure that she's eating properly, and what kind of support does she have? Because having a baby is, is a huge adjustment for the woman, and um, support is really essential so that, um, the, you know, things run smoothly and any kind of risk is um, prevented. Now, Julia, you just mentioned uh, anemia. Uh, how common is it uh, during pregnancy and what are the symptoms? Because the woman is preparing for uh, this child, her blood volume increases dramatically, especially during the circular third trimester. And so there's a great need for more iron in the body which often that need is not met through the diet alone. Ideally, it should be, but the case more often than not is that it, uh, the nutritional um, needs are not enough in terms of what the body needs. So what she should look for is um, feeling extremely tired, really, really exhausted, um, and even sleeping is not enough. She might feel dizzy or short of breath. Her heartbeat might be rapid or regular. And she often has pale skin, pale lips and nails. The hands and feet might be cold. She might have trouble concentrating. 
these are some of the signs that you might be anemic. And it's often because the iron levels are low and we need iron in our bodies in order to make um, hemoglobin, which carries the oxygen around the body. So that's some of the symptoms you should be looking out for. And now we don't often get enough uh, iron from you know our food uh, sources. Mm. Um, what is the best way to ensure that we get enough iron? So we would look at supplementation in terms of getting more iron in the body. But as you said, iron is one of those minerals that the body does not absorb well. So what you find is you take iron tablets, and you normally you take uh, quite a big dose of iron. So for example. Um, of, of a, a tablet that has like 100% iron, your body will only absorb 2 or 3%. And the rest that gets eliminated causes horrible side effects like nausea and constipation. And we know with pregnant women, they often have um, a problem with constipation already. So taking an iron supplement only aggravates the situation. But luckily we can turn to nature and, you know, we have mineral waters which are iron-rich like spartone. And that water is naturally rich in iron. So one can take that every day. It actually comes in a sachet form. And that's the beautiful thing about this iron water is that it has no side effects. It doesn't cause nausea. doesn't cause constipation. And taking one or two sachets a day will make sure that that pregnant woman gets all the iron that she needs. Um, so Spartan sachet is really a wonderful way of getting iron into the body without the horrible side effects that often comes from conventional iron tablets. Great. And in closing, Julia, what are your top health and lifestyle tips uh, for pregnant women? The important thing is that she has some antenatal care. So before pregnancy, go for health visits and make sure she has all the necessary tests like HIV and any, any other kind of tests. Make sure that her blood pressure is good and that her blood sugar is well controlled. Um, and also seek support from other pregnant mothers. Um, it's really wonderful to be part of a group of women who are all in the same situation that can support each other through the whole pregnancy and afterwards. Very, very important is that she needs to take care of herself, make sure that she's eating a lot of fruits and vegetables and healthy protein, and staying away from a lot of sugar, spicy, oily foods, processed foods. Definitely avoid that. Too much, uh, also totally avoid alcohol, caffeine, which um, are not good for her or the baby. Also with pregnancy, it's best to avoid things like raw fish, um, rare and cured meat or soft cheeses because these um, foods um, run the risk of um, having high concentrations of bacterial parasites. So she should avoid that. Definitely supplement with iron, like with spartone, and exercise. Very, very important that she exercise every day. Exercise, very important. Thank you very much, Julia, for speaking to us. Wonderful. It's a pleasure, Kahiso. Bye-bye. And that was Julia Crisuolo, a pharmacist and an expert in complementary medicines in South Africa. The time now is 8.30 Central African time. Time for your headlines with Jolani Tulo.
Thank you, Kakisho. Making headlines, the president of Eritrea, Isaiah Safweki, expresses displeasure with, Ibra- with Israel's plan to deport tens of thousands of African migrants. South African President Jacob Zuma meets the National Prosecuting Authority's deadline and submits representations on why he should not be prosecuted for fraud and corruption. And finally, South Africa's Health Minister Aaron Mozoledi apologizes unconditionally for the deaths of 144 mentally ill patients after they were transferred to unlicensed NGOs across the Gauteng province. For Channel Africa, I'm Jolani Tulo. Thank you, Jolani, for those headlines. You're still listening to Africa Rise and Shine right here on Channel Africa, the African Perspective. A unit of African media and e-commerce giant, NASPERS, says it will not renew its contract with African News Network 7, formerly owned by Friends of South African President Jacob Zuma, citing controversy around owners of the TV channel. The decision to not renew the contract, effective from August, comes after an internal investigation by multi-choice into its own corporate governance failures after a group of investigative journalists raised questions about payments it made to ANN7. Until August 2016, ANN7 belonged to the Gupta family, whose members include a trio of businessmen accused of using their ties to Zuma to amass wealth and influence government policy. Naledi Ngobo has more. Multichoice said that an internal investigation found that there was no corrupt or illegal conduct in its agreement with ANN7. However, the company concedes that it had not done due diligence in the establishment of the agreement. Multichoice CEO Calvo Mawela explains. We made some mistakes in our dealing with ANN7. We acknowledge that we should have looked into the controversies around ANN7 before public concern was raised, and this should have been escalated to the board sooner. We will not be renewing our contract with ANN7. Instead, we are going to be hosting a new black-owned news channel, and we will be calling for proposals from interested media groups very soon. Mawela said that a bid process for a replacement news channel would be opened shortly. The successful bid will meet the following criteria, amongst others. It must be owned, managed and run by a black South African company, free from any political or other interference. It must be able to provide independent, non-partisan and critical news coverage of current affairs. It must take into account South Africa's history, diversity of cultural backgrounds, language and socio-economic circumstances in the way it produces content. Multi-choice also came under fire for alleged payments to SABC executives in exchange for the public broadcaster's political influence over digital migration. Mawela said that Multi-choice would comply with the Special Investigative Unit's inquiry into the SABC matter. It should be noted that the Multi-choice contract with SABC did not form part of the brief given to the Audit and Risk Committee. However, Parliament has referred the issue of the SABC to the Special Investigation Unit. And multi-choice is fully cooperating with the SIU in this regard. Nesper CEO Bob Fandek said that he believes the former CEO of multi-choice, MTS Patel, was acting with the company's best interest at heart. He said he fully supports the corrective measures currently undertaken by multi-choice. It is evident from the findings that given how polarized the political environment, th- this required a higher level of diligence and 
scrutiny than the company lived up to. MDS Patel's previous relationship with the Gupta family has played no role in the negotiation of the contract. And it's also clear to us that MTS has always acted in the best interests of the company. The multi-choice briefing sound is courtesy of ENCA, Amnaledi Ngobo in Johannesburg. South African Health Minister Aaron Motswaledi has described the deaths of 144 mentally ill patients in the life Esidimeni tragedy as one of the most painful events in post-apartheid South Africa. Mutsualedi was overcome by emotions as he apologized to the affected families at the end of his testimony at the arbitration hearings in Johannesburg yesterday. Gauteng Province Premier David Makura and Health MEC Gwen Ramokopa also apologized and committed to fix the health system during their testimonies yesterday. As Wisani Makubela reports, Minister Mutsualedi was the last witness to give evidence as the arbitration will now move to the next stage. I regard the life is the main issue as constituting one of the most painful and horrible events in the history of post about South Africa. On the day the Ombuds released his report, I was asked by the media if I'm not embarrassed by this. And I said this goes beyond embarrassment. I'm not embarrassed, I'm horrified and very angry because I feel people have been betrayed. But I also felt personally betrayed as the Minister of Health, who is presiding over this department. So for that reason, I said, embarrassment doesn't really come to defile the feeling I'm having. Because this has tarnished the health system of the country in a way unimaginable. And it has placed very difficult, us in a very difficult position nationally and internationally because wherever you go internationally they ask you about this issue of life is the main the minister's misery could be compounded by news that 12 more patients might have died during the life many relocations this is over and above the confirmed 144 deaths 48 others remain unaccounted for during health mc gwenram hopas appearance at the hearings on wednesday section 27's advocate nikki stain put it to the mc that it's still not clear how many people actually died the affidavits deposed to by the bereaved family members do establish that the deceased passed away within the relevant time period. Justice, what I can say at this point in time is that one death is one death too many. And that uh, if um, indeed uh, there are deaths that were during this period and are validated and verified to have been during this period as a result of the Gauteng Mental Marathon project, indeed uh, it would be appropriate to acknowledge that. Meanwhile, Ramuhupa says she's reviewing the sanctions against six departmental directors who were involved in the implementation of the fatal project. The six escaped with a final written warning, and the MEC believes that's too lenient. At the same time, Premier David Makura, who was on the stand before Ramuhupa, told the hearings that an intervention team has been appointed to investigate the Provincial Department of Health Finances following allegations of irregular expenditure. There is a lot of scams to siphon the money out of the Department of Health. I had a meeting with the SIU. They are now going to help us deal with that. There's lots of scams involving lawyers and doctors, and they are milking the department. 
sometimes with the participation of officials in the system. So it can't be lack of money on terminating life as it demanding. We don't buy it. There was budgeting for it. The Special Investigation Unit is going to help us crack all the areas of corruption in the Department of Health. This is not small. It involves billions of friends. Ramukhopa, Makura and Motswalidi profusely apologized to the families for their loss and suffering. However, Makura says the best way to honor the victims is to fix the health system. I know that apologizing doesn't bring back those who are normal. And I have said in this uh, hearing that as the head of government in our province, I could have done more and even intervene even after the reports were there. I apologize that uh, something like this happened. It breaks my heart that we have failed them the way we did. As a leader, I can only commit to do my best to fix the system. Minister Mutswaledi says there's no such a thing as a collective decision in the state, refuting claims by former MEC Kadani Mashango and former HOD Banisi Libano that the decision to terminate the contract with Life Esidimeni and send patients to NGOs was a collective decision. On Tuesday, Finance MEC Barbara Creasy also ravished their claims that the department was under pressure from the Treasury to cut costs. Mutswaledi says those who broke the law and also violated human rights must be charged. The minister was, however, overcome by emotions when he apologized to the families. When I read the Umba's report about how people were bundled in vents and tied with sheets and how they were chosen like, as he described it, like cattle at an auction, I... I couldn't just imagine in our new democracy. Proceedings have been adjourned until the 8th of this month when lawyers involved in the arbitration will debate appropriate compensation for the families of the victims. I'm Wissani Makubele in Johannesburg. The Salvation Army is calling for the complete eradication of female genital mutilation, FGM. The international movement, which is an an evangelical part of the Universal Christian Church describes FGM as a practice that dishonors God and devalues women and girls. According to the World Health Organization, FGM is most common in the western, eastern and northeastern regions of Africa, as well as in some countries in the Middle East and Asia. The Salvation Army's Major, Karine Holmes, says although FGM does not appear to be widely practiced in South Africa, Research by some charities has shown its existence among vendor communities in the northeastern parts of the country. We are aware of that. You know, as our officers travel and as I think media and awareness programs talks about human trafficking, etc., etc., women abuse, I think as that is taking more and more place, I think people are kind of realizing that they are are not as alone as what they think they are and coming forward. And so as we are traveling throughout South Africa and visiting some very rural areas, we find more and more of these things um, coming out of the woodwork and uh, realizing that some of these practices are actually going on.
From what you've discovered, does it seem as though this practice has long been around in these communities in South Africa or is it something that's newly introduced? I I don't think it's newly introduced. I think it's been going on, and I say I think. I think it's just been undercover, you know. Uh, I I think people didn't speak about it. People are afraid to speak about it. Some things aren't spoken about. You know what I'm saying? I think it's just that people are a bit more brave, And, and especially some of our young African girls, you know finding the courage to speak about things that are happening. It's the same with abuse. You know, people are coming forward now saying, yeah, I've been abused, you know. It's happened to me and they're not afraid to speak anymore because there's like a safety net for them, kind of, that perhaps wasn't there before. And now the Salvation Army is stressing the need to raise awareness on this cultural practice which has been found to be very dangerous and bears no health benefits contrary to what people believe, right? Yes, absolutely. I mean, I would like them to show us what health benefits there is. There is no health benefits. It just damages the girl, not only physically, but emotionally, I think. In our case, uh, Lucy's story, uh, spiritually as well, you know, and that's a no-no. The Lucy story you've just touched on is about a lady in Tanzania, also one of the countries known to be still practicing FGM. Mm. And I know the Salvation Army runs uh, a certain program there to help FGM victims teams uh, sort of recover. Can you elaborate more on what uh, the Salvation Army is doing in Tanzania? Yeah, so Lucy is actually a, a member of the Salvation Army. In fact, she's a minister, a pastor in the Salvation Army now. And, uh, you know, her story is quite extraordinary because she realized, you know, she needs to speak up, she needs to do something. So in Tanzania, she's realized that this is a common practice. And so she has started a program and she's working with the Salvation Army's Women's Department to make people sensitive about this uh, practice that is totally a no-no and to give them an understanding, you know, of, of exactly what it does, what it means, what it can do to them. And that discussion between uh, the Salvation Army's Karen Holmes and our Jane Rabotata leads us to the economics news with Wisani Matebula. Good morning. Thanks, Eka. So South African Labour Union, CWU, say pay TV giant multi-choice decision to dump Gupta-owned AN7 has a negative impact on staff of the 24-hour television news channel. Multi-choice announced that it will not renew AN7's contract when it expired in August. CWU's Aubrey Chabalala says they're concerned about the employees' job security. We have already tried to consult the multi-choice with regard to the decision that they've taken. We are not impressed with the decision that they've taken for various reasons. They said in their own report that they did not find any regularities. However, there was this uh, due diligence that they don't embarked on it. Having said all of that, we believe that if there's any corruption, there will be a corrupt and a corruptee. It means that multi-choice will have to reflect on itself because there will be some employees within it that have embarked on the irregular approach on, on this in, in terms of acquiring the contracts. 
Deputy Governor of South Africa's Reserve Bank, Kuben Naidu, says uh, the collapse of Steinhoff does not pose a financial stability risk for the country. He says this after they looked at how much Steinhoff owes local banks and how much bonds they hold in the country. The South African Reserve Bank is one of the regulatory bodies called by Parliament to talk about the implications of the Steinhoff crisis on the South African economy. Naidu elaborates. Our view is that while these while the collapse of Steinhoff may result in significant losses for banks, lenders and investors, we do not think that this poses a financial stability risk. Um, even if every cent of those loans and investments are lost, it's a relatively small portion of the total assets under management. Uh, it's a fraction of the total capital held by the banking system. And Japan's Fujifilm uh, Holdings is cutting 10,000 jobs globally at its joint venture with Xerox. This to cope with the decline in the photocopying business amid speculation of a new deal between the two companies. Fujifilm owns 75% of the joint venture called Fuji Xerox, which accounts for nearly half of the Japanese company's sales and operating profit. Fuji Xerox had over 47,000 employees as of March 2017, meaning the job cuts would likely slash its workforce by more than a fifth. Xerox Corporation owns the remaining 25% of Fuji Xerox and has faced pressure from investors to explore strategic options and negotiate better terms on the venture with Fuji Films. Facebook founder Mark Zagerbeck says uh, the changes to the social network's news feed have caused a significant drop in usage. The BBC's Dave Lee reports. If you use Facebook a lot, you may have noticed fewer so-called viral videos appearing on your feed lately. That's deliberate, an effort by Facebook to remove the amount of tat on your newsfeed in the hope better content from your family and friends will take its place. That's having an immediate impact. Facebook's more than 2 billion monthly users are collectively now spending 50 million hours less per day on Facebook. Nigeria's corn output for the 2017-2018 season will probably decline as much as 750,000 metric tons due to the impact of pests and increased imports. Africa's most populous country is estimated to produce 10 million tons of corn in the current season, 7% less than the 10.75 million tons in the 2016-2017 season. Nigeria is Africa's biggest corn producer after South Africa. Now, for your financial indicators, there is dollar trading at 11.88 South African rands at 9.42 Botswana Pula, 9.71 Zambian Guacha. Also trading at 80 pence to the British, British pound and 80 cents against the euro. Commodities gold at $1,343, platinum at $1,002 per fine ounce, and the spot price of Brent crude oil at $68.75 per barrel. That's how it's looking right now. Thank you, Wisani. Now, Fikile is standing by with your sports news.
We begin with football news. Nigeria have booked a spot in the 2018 KEF African Nations Championship Chan final after beating Sudan 1-0 last night at a Stade de Marrakesh in Morocco. An early goal by Okechuku Gabriel helped the West Africans secure a spot in the final where they will meet host Morocco on Sunday. And in local football, South African Premiership side Ajax Cape Town took their chances well last night as they beat Orlando Pirates 3-0 at the Cape Town Stadium in an absent premiership game. While Pirates may have dominated position, it was the home team who found the net three times through Musa Libusa and a brace from Ivorian international Yannick Zakri. Pirates coach Micho Sredejovic says that he cannot fault his team's effort on the night as the only statistic that did not end in Pirates' favor is the goal line. And Ajax coach Mushin Etugral says his team showed a lot of grit and character in this win and he's delighted to beat a team as good as Orlando Pirates. Having been forced to make all his substitutes before the second half, he was proud of how they found until the very end. Fought rather. And the second last step towards the 2019 Cricket World Cup takes place next month when Namibia hosts the World Cricket League Division 2 in Windhoek from the 8th to the 15th of February. The top two nations will go through to the final World Cup qualifier in Zimbabwe in March and with six strong nations competing, the competition will be fierce. Besides Namibia, the other competing nations are Kenya, Canada, Oman, Nepal and the United Arab Emirates. And we're ending up with the Olympic torch. The Olympic torch relay around South Korea reached Hyeongseong County yesterday on day 92 of its procession around the country. After a number of torch bearers had jogged along the road towards Hyeongseong, the torch was carried instead by a traditional cow cart. The cow pulling the cart is an example of the local agricultural speciality. The area is well known for its Korean beef produced in rich pastures and also for its cattle market. The relay will continue to the town for a reception. That's the Sport News this hour. Africa, rise and shine. Africa, Zola. Africa, Amuka na Unai. Your top stories on Africa Rise and Shine this hour. South African opposition don't want President Zuma to deliver the State of the Nation address. Activists say anti-corruption needs to be included in the schooling curriculum. And that wraps up Africa Rise and Shine today. From the producers of the show, Promozo Ramagadza and Tutonkobeni, technical producer Mario Edwards, myself, Kahisho Sekhetelo and the rest of the team, Thank you very much for listening and do have a great day further. Our WhatsApp line is plus two seven seven six three hundred double three two seven. Our SMS line is plus two seven seven nine six nine five seven nine three zero. You can also email us at info at channelafrica.co.za and do interact with us uh, via the social networks. Our Twitter handle is at Rise Shine Africa. 
taking us to the top of the hour for the news and on the frequency 7230 kHz on the 31-meter band to Southern Africa is a song by Black Motion titled Lalela.